All right. Hey, Redemption Tempe, how you doing tonight? Good to see you guys. Uh, really fun to watch those baptism videos. That was one of our previous Sundays where we baptized people. We are doing that again in two weeks, October 27th. Uh, please come and join us. You can clap loudly and cheer loudly. It's a great time. And um, if you have not been baptized before, you would like to be, please talk to us. Uh, in, in the lobby, there's a desk. We call it the Connect Desk. Uh, go there and you can get more information. You can sign up. If you... Um, have not been baptized or were baptized when you were very young or something, you're not sure if it counted, or you don't know, uh, you don't know what baptism really signifies or means. Um, my name is Benjamin. I'll be in the media booth after this service back there, on the back of the sanctuary. I'm happy to talk to you about any issue or any confusion you might have, if, if you uh, would be a good candidate for baptism or not, and uh, come and talk to me. Uh, usually it is yes, but uh, hey, you never, you never know. Um, also, on October 27th, we have a class. Uh, I get to the privilege of teaching this class called Delighting in the Trinity. Most of you have heard the word Trinity. Some of you are like, Trina what? Um, and that's okay. The Trinity is a, is a big doctrine in Christianity. It's unique to Christianity. It is beautiful and powerful and really confusing. It's just really hard to understand, and so I would love for you to come and join me at 5 p.m. on that Sunday. The North Classroom, as you can see up here, it's across this parking lot directly north of here. That's what we call the North Classroom. Also in the North Classroom, a shorter time frame is three days from now we're doing a class on theology of justice. Um, Jim Mullins is going to teach that class. He's great at this stuff. We just did a Justice First Wednesday, October 2nd. The audio was online. So this is a great follow-up to that. There's a lot more questions, a lot more discussion to be had about how God loves justice in a broken world and how we are to operate and um, operate by his spirit and in faith. So go to that class this Wednesday, 6.30, at that North Classroom as well. Uh, now I want to call up Daniel Zaring. Uh, we do these interviews, all of life interviews. Uh, would you guys welcome Daniel Zaring up to the stage with me? So, you know, this interview is all of life is all for Jesus. Um, We say that phrase a lot. We mean that every sphere of life, every moment, every effort, everything we do, everything we say, we want it to be all for Jesus, that it's all for his glory and all for our joy. That's what we mean by that. Um, That includes work. And vocation. It's a huge piece of all of our lives. Um, so, Daniel, besides being a bass player and doing that quite well for us, that's a volunteer position. Um, what do you do for a living? Yeah, I spent uh, many years as a special education teacher and recently experienced a shift. Uh, I'm now a peer evaluator. So I work with a county organization uh, that supports schools and districts in high-needs areas, mostly in central Phoenix, Um, in implementing mandated evaluation systems. So I meet with teachers, I observe lessons, and and then I provide feedback based on uh, nationally recognized criteria. Um, Basically what I do is I work with uh, teacher practice and evidence to open up a dialogue in order to improve instruction so that um, all students can achieve at higher levels. So in the field of education, which you're in, you were a teacher for many years and, and now doing what you're doing, what you just said, um, you have a lot of influence, hands-on influence into people's lives. Uh, as a believer in Jesus, how do you glorify God in this job? How do you work for the good of your neighbor in this job? Yeah, there's two, um, there's two kind of themes that have really driven me throughout my career. Um, one is a fact that I think we all know about. Um, it's, it's a fact that not everybody has the same shot at an excellent education. Um, and then the other thing is... Um, a new reality 
um, maybe not so new, but certainly a defining one that teachers are experiencing. It's a time of change, and expectations constantly seem to be um, changing and renewing. Um, so when I interact with that, um, with the first one, you know, I, it's, it's been really well documented that there's a gap. There's an achievement gap drawn along um, uh, racial and cultural socioeconomic lines, and, you know, it's a really complicated issue, but that makes it a justice issue. And I believe God cares about justice. Um, in Luke 1.52, it says that God um, exalts the humble of state. And I believe education was, is one of the ways he can tangibly do that. And so in my position, if I can provide a little catalyst to um, improve instruction in the classroom, that means students um, have a little better chance of learning and a little better chance of life. Um, on the, on the other side of things, teaching is also a really personal profession. You know, I think it's as hard as it's ever been to be in the classroom and to be a teacher. So when I sit across the table from a teacher, um, I have an opportunity to make it about more than a conversation, but to really make it about a connection. Um, you know, that, mean, that means I have the opportunity to convey um, a tremendous amount of, of dignity, to recognize the, the tremendous dignity that God places on, um, on people because they're his creation. So, um, you know, I hope that through encouragement and through that dialogue and reflection, uh, they might get a chance to encounter his love. Uh, you, you went to ASU, correct? Yeah. All right. Go Devils. So, yeah. Uh, but but you, can't, you can't actually come out on the stage without having gone to ASU unless you get a special pass. That's kind of the way it works. Um, uh, but with all the folks here who, who are at ASU or, or any other school and considering going into the field of education, usually as a teacher, but whatever form, do you have any advice for those folks? Yeah, I, I think alongside, um, alongside making the experience of teaching a passion, um, make the art and the science of teaching a passion. You know, it's about continuing to be a lifelong learner um, as you go into the classroom because it's a huge learning curve. Um, it can be discouraging, but with that attitude, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of room to grow and make just a tremendous difference. Um, how can we pray for you and all of those in the field of education? Yeah. Uh, for teachers first, pray for teachers um, that they'd experience uh, just comfort and support and they'd have a steadfast passion for their students, that they'd, um, you know, be driven to love their students uh, and, and pursue progress and, and learning for every student um, in a holistic sense. Um, pray for principals. Uh, I'm convinced it's one of the hardest positions out there to lead a school. Um, and so that, that a principal's heart would burn for their teachers and burn for their students. And again, just persistence and steadfastness in the face of a lot of challenges. Um, and I'd also encourage you to um, pray for educational innovators, um, that especially Christians in this field, we might um, pursue change that... Uh, more accurately reflects God's design for the way humans flourish and grow. That's fantastic. Thank you for that, that word, too. That's a great way to think about prayer. Uh, I want to pray for you, and I want to pray for anyone here who is in, working in the field of education. Would you raise your hand if you're in education in any way, teacher or otherwise? All right, it's great. I love how many teachers and, and folks we have here. Uh, let, let's pray for these guys. Father, we thank you so much that you are a creator of this world, that you love this world, that you created it good and very good. Lord, all truth is your truth. You are a God of knowledge, a God who wants us as your creatures to know things, know good things about you, all these things that reflect your glory and your grace. And Lord, you have put teachers in the way to do that in a, in a massive way 
very influential on people's lives. Um, Lord, would you, would you give, give a great blessing by your spirit and in truth and in power to, to Daniel, to all of those who are teachers, who are principals, who are educational innovators, and anyone else who works in the field of education. God, would you bless them greatly with, with peace when there is conflict, with wisdom when there is need for it, which is so often, and, and Lord, with, um, with joy that joy would just well up through them and and they would be lights of you and they'd be salt and light in our world. God, would you do this for our glory and do it for our joy? We pray pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Thanks, Daniel. All right. Doing these uh, all-of-life interviews is one of my favorite things. I love seeing people like Daniel who take seriously the fact that God sends them into places like education. And so as much as you pray for pastors and for people in need, pray for people in their vocations. Um, To get started today, uh, I got the privilege of leading us through Romans 6, verse 8 through 11. And so uh, before we jump in, uh, go ahead and take out your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and we'll have somebody uh, coming down the aisle who's able to give you one. And... um, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one. It's, a, it's a, our gift to you. Um, <clears throat> starting off today, before we open up to Romans 6, I want us to engage our imagination a little bit. I want you to imagine what it would be like to be one of the disciples. Now, most of us in here should probably describe ourselves as disciples of Jesus, but I'm talking about the disciples that were around when Jesus walked the earth. Now, you're not one of the 12, one of the 12 main disciples. You're one of the other ones, but still, you're around Jesus, and it's pretty awesome. Maybe your name is James or Mary, but, but when people come up to you and they say, hey, are you James? Are you like the brother of Jesus? You say, no, no, I'm just James, the one who takes care of the donkeys. But regardless, you get to spend time with Jesus. You get to sit down and have meals with him and get to know him firsthand, get to know him face to face. You get to know him so well that you begin to be able to even predict and interpret his facial expressions. You're in awe of the miracles. You remember that time when you were at the, the wedding when Jesus to keep the party going, turn some water into some wine. That other time, he took some fish sandwiches from a kid and ended up feeding 5,000 people. And you love it. Even sometimes when you're perplexed, like the time he cursed the fig tree, and you, it left you wondering, what does Jesus have against figs? I don't know. <clears throat> but you're amazed by him. His compassion. The way he moves towards the suffering and even the sick that nobody will pay any attention to, Jesus puts his hands on them and cares for them and loves them and heals them. Rather than conferring with kings, he plays with children. He heals. He goes out of his way to love and bless his enemies, to love the other, even when it's not socially acceptable. Imagine how you would love his teaching and how you'd get so excited as you walk down the road and anytime you see Jesus turn around, you know he's going to say something great. You know there's going to be some parable that's going to leave you perplexed, but you're going to be thinking about it for weeks. 
and you hang on his every word. Because what Jesus has done is he's taken the scriptures that you had known your whole life. And he's opened them up to you and showed you the most beautiful kingdom that you can possibly imagine. And how the Messiah was coming. Imagine the joy that you would have when you're with the other disciples and all kinds of other people. That day of triumphal entry. When Jesus rode the donkey up on the hill and into Jerusalem. You were with them when you were throwing palm branches on the ground and yelling, Hosanna. And everybody was excited. We were excited because because we knew that the Messiah was coming into to Jerusalem to liberate his people. Now you can imagine how over the next few nights you'd just stay up in bed, lay, laying in your bed, just pondering the good things that were to come with the Messiah. But then imagine, in the middle of the night, you, you hear something at your door, and, and someone breaks through the door, and they come into your, into your bedroom, and it's your cousin, and they say, Jesus has been arrested. Jesus has been arrested. I don't know exactly what happened. The, uh, Judas was there. Peter was there. Somebody got their ear cut off, and I just don't know what's going on. And you'd be confused, and you'd be perplexed. You remember Jesus saying something about that might happen? But you're hoping that your cousin has got it wrong. You're hoping that it's just a confusion. After all, there are many people in Jerusalem named Jesus. So you wake up in the morning nervous and hoping that what you will find is that it was all just a misunderstanding. But you walk outside and you can tell that the streets are, are buzzing. You can tell that scandal is happening in Jerusalem. And you wander around trying to figure out what's going on. And you get there just in time, just in time to see Jesus, the one you care for, the one you love, the one you adore, being pulled over and tied to a post as some thug of a Roman soldier takes a whip to his back and just rips it wide open. And, and you're mixed. You've got mixed emotions because on one hand you feel rage. And on the other hand, you feel compassion for Jesus. And you start praying and you start begging God to call down the angels to to stop what's happening. But the angels never come. As a matter of fact, it gets worse. Roman soldiers, they mock him. They, They put on his clothes and they dance around and they pretend like they're kings. And then they hit him. They blindside him. And all the people, the people maybe who have relatives that he's healed, that he's cared for, are mocking him and are gazing at him as his mostly naked body is walking down the street, carrying this this cross that's leaving splinters in his back. And as he goes up the hill, you see the blood drops staining the ground. And you're concerned and you're horrified. And then you get to the top of the hill. You get to the top of the hill where you see the most horrendous thing you've ever seen. You see them drive nails into his hands and his feet and put a mocking crown of thorns on his head and beat it in with a stick. And you're horrified. And with every scream that Jesus yells out in anguish, your soul feels anguish and shatters like a piece of glass. 
you see a tree that's kind of far away and you go lay down by that tree because you just can't even stand anymore. But it's still enough to keep Jesus in your eyesight. And you just curl up and you just lay there and you watch him die. And after he's finally dead and they take him down, you're distraught. You go back to your house and you lay on that same bed. Most of your time is spent crying. You can't eat anything and you really struggle to even sleep. You even feel a little bit of anger toward Jesus because you actually believed he was the Messiah. And you just don't know what to make of all of it. You're discouraged and distraught and devastated and your world has lost its meaning. And then imagine, you hear a rustling at the door and that same cousin bursts through and he says, he's risen. Jesus has risen. The, The 12 disciples, they've seen him. Some of the women, they've seen him. And he bolts out the door. And at first you think your cousin is doing a horribly cruel joke. And then you think for a moment, maybe my cousin has lost his mind. So you run after your cousin. You go out the door and you chase him down. And when you finally see him stop, you realize that there are many familiar faces around. And you look around and there's close to 500 followers of Jesus all there. People just buzzing with anticipation People excited. You can tell that there are little discussions going on. And you look over, and what do you see? You see Jesus in the room. He's risen. Where there had been wounds, there is now a restored body. And it's really him. And he's showing his wounds to people. And and people are running towards him. And you look over to your cousin, and you say, this is amazing. What could this mean? What could this mean for our lives, for everything? This changes everything. What could this mean? And that is the question that the church has been constantly asking for 2,000 years. As we take the death and the resurrection of Jesus and we look and we see all of the amazing implications of the cross and of the resurrection Uh, for our world and for our lives. And that's essentially what Paul is doing in Romans. This big, robust theological book is about the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the implications for our lives. And so as we approach it, let's be very sure that we're not approaching the death and the resurrection of Jesus as dry theological concepts, but as real historic events that happened that change everything, that are beautiful, and that have implications for every aspect of our life. And so the section that we're going to focus on today is Romans chapter 6. Really, uh, I'm going to focus on verses 8 through 11. But 8 through 11 are a part of a bigger argument that we find in verses 1 through 14. And essentially, the question that Paul is asking is found in verse 1. It says, uh, you know, should we keep sinning so that grace may abound? Essentially, that's Paul's question. In other words, if, if our sin... Uh, shows how gracious God is, 
Shouldn't we just sin like crazy and then God will be seen as so gracious? And we've talked about this in previous weeks, but essentially Paul's answer is no. We have been fundamentally changed through union with Christ. See, not only did Jesus die on the cross, and not only did he emerge from the grave, but somehow, for those of us who have faith in Christ, we were spiritually present in the cross and in the resurrection. We are bound to Christ, and his his death on the cross was the end. It was the death of our old life, and the resurrection, his resurrection, we emerge with him with newness of life. And we find this, uh, primarily in, in uh, all over the place, but in uh, Romans uh, 6, verse 5, which I believe is sort of the thesis statement of this section, the key sort of phrase that Paul's arguing for. And it says this, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Essentially, this is saying that what happened to Jesus physically happened to us spiritually. As he died physically, our old life died with him. And as he was resurrected to newness of life, we have a new spiritual life that's resurrected as well. And there are several implications and realities that I just want to address. The first one, the first reality of our union with Christ is that our old sinful selves have died with Christ on the cross. Now, Ricardo talked about this last week, so I won't spend a ton of time, but I just want to note a few things. First of all, Paul makes a very big deal about this point. He actually says it in four different ways within a few different verses. Verse 2, he says that we died to sin. Verse 3 and 4, he says that we were baptized into the death of Christ. Verse 6, he says that our old self was crucified with him. And in verse 8, he says that we uh, have died with Christ. And anytime you see repetition in Scripture, typically it's trying, to make, uh, it's trying to show emphasis. Now, anyone who's been around or has, you know, toddler children knows that, that repetition can often equal emphasis. Yesterday, I was asked by my daughter no less than 400 times to go to the library. I don't know what kind of berry that is, but it's, uh, it's not very tasty. She, she wants to go to the library, and she, there's no argument that I can give her that can convince her otherwise. It could be an earthquake, but she would respond, but I want to go to the library. And, and over and over, we hear it. And Paul's not wanting to go to the library, but he is wanting you to know that your old lives have died with Christ. And this has tremendous implications. First of all, that we are free from the slavery of sin. In our former life, we were bound to sin. We were stuck in sin. We were slaves to sin. It was like the piece of gum that gets stuck in your hair that you just can't get out. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't get it out. But in our new lives, we are set free from sin and we are bound to Jesus. In other words, he's the peanut butter that gets that, that nastiness out. <laughs> another another uh, implication is that Jesus' death was, is 
perfectly and eternally effective in assassinating our sin. It took it out. You see, in the Old Testament, what the priests would do is they would have to do sacrifices year after year after year. They had this whole sacrificial system where they would sacrifice lambs uh, that would be for the atonement of the people's sins. And there were many of them. I've, I, I've, uh, lived in, uh, I lived in Turkey for three years. I've been to a lot of Muslim countries. And I, let me tell you, when they do sacrifices in the streets, it can be wild. You literally have blood running down the gutters because so many animals get sacrificed. But what Jesus, what this passage is saying is that Jesus doesn't need to die for us year after year after year. But his death was perfectly effective. It was perfectly effective with the one shot, the one moment that he went to the cross. We see this in Romans 6, 9 through 10. You can go ahead and read it with me. It says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. We see in this passage that, that, that Jesus, for a short time, put himself under the dominion of death. For us, not because he was weak, but because we were weak. Not because he was sinful, but because we were sinful. And he died, and death had dominion over him for a moment. But in his resurrection, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, for us. But the life he now lives, he lives to God. The one movement to deal with sin was perfectly effective. On the cross. He doesn't need to die year after year for us. But his cross deals with our sins past, present, and future. It reminds me of when I grew up in the Boys and Girls Club. In the Boys and Girls Club, we love the Boys and Girls Club, but the Boys and Girls Club was always trying to shake us down for some money. They were. So uh, when we played in the Boys and Girls Club League, they had this little raffle at halftime. And you could buy a raffle ticket, you'd put your name on it, and it was like $3. And if you won the raffle at halftime, you got to take a a half-court shot. Uh, You got three opportunities, and if you took the half-court shot and you made it, you'd get half the money in the pot. Now, half the money. Boys and Girls Club had to keep some for themselves. So, Uh, the Boys and Girls Club was great, by the way. Uh, But they... So we had this thing, and nobody ever made it. Nobody. So Boys and Girls Club was getting rich. But there was one guy on our basketball team. His name was DJ. DJ wasn't the greatest basketball player. Probably because he spent all of his time practicing one shot. And that was the half-court shot. Now, anytime the coach... Look, even looked the other way, DJ would sprint to half court and just throw up a half court shot. He tried all the different styles of half court shot. He did a granny, he, but he always practiced the half court shot. And then one game, sure enough, they drew his name from, from, the, from the hat. Frankly, I think he was buying like 30 tickets every time. But, but we knew when they called his name, That DJ was made for such a time as this. 
he, was, he went up to the half-court shot, and he was, he was excited. And we knew that he was, he was good to go. You see, we knew also that once, if he hit that shot, it was going to be good for us because that meant we were getting tacos. So we were cheering him on, and he steps up. And the little director of the Boys and Girls Club hands him the ball and starts to explain the rules. But he didn't need to explain the rules. DJ knew the rules. He had three shots. He grabbed the ball. He put one dribble down. And he shot it, sunk it, nothing but net. Everyone was excited. We knew we were getting tacos. It was awesome. And and, and DJ did not need to shoot that shot over and over again. He didn't need his three tries because he nailed it on the first shot and we all got tacos. And the, the cross of Christ is so effective and so powerful over sin that we don't need a continual sacrifice, but we need one who, who gets it on the first shot, who is Jesus, and we get the tacos. <laughs> this leads us to the discussion of, the, of the, uh, the next reality of our union with Christ, that we are united to Jesus in his resurrected life. Going back to the theme verse, we see that it's not just the death of Christ that we're connected to, but also his, his life, his resurrection. So in verse 5, let me read it again. For, we, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And this corresponds to verse 11, which gives some of the, the, the so what to our lives. It says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, being united to Christ makes us new people who don't, merely run from sin, but run toward God. It doesn't just mean that our old life is dead, but it means that we have a new life, new actual life. We're not like zombies who are kind of dead and kind of alive, but we are people who are fully alive because of the good news. We are people who are not merely sin avoiders, but God lovers. And in present evangelicalism, it can sometimes, we can sometimes lose the resurrection. For example, let me, let me give you just a, uh, an example of a gospel explanation. You might hear someone say, you've sinned and therefore you're alienated from God and Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And so if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. You will get to be in in heaven forever. Now, at first, that sounds pretty good. But the problem is this. There's no mention of the resurrection. And oftentimes, this is our understanding of the gospel. Our understanding of the gospel can be void of the resurrection. And let me say this. If you are lacking either the cross or the resurrection in your understanding of the gospel, you're not getting the whole gospel. The resurrection is vitally important. Not just so we can be people who avoid sin, although that's important, but so that we can live newness of life, so that we can be alive toward God and participate in a resurrected life. So what does this look like? Let me just, let me give you a picture. Let me explain a little bit of what it could look like. 
Well, first of all, as the Holy Spirit breathes new life into us and we're risen with Christ, we get new minds. These minds constantly dwell on the inexpressible majesty of God's character, daydreaming about his brilliant acts within history to rescue and redeem and restore this unraveling world. These new minds aren't stuck in the clouds. They're not pie in the sky. Uh, but we've, what we've done is we've replaced our thoughts of worry and self-centeredness, and we've thrust them outward to gaze at God's world and to see the stunning beauty of creation found in the faithfulness in mathematics, the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, the mystery of music, and the splendor of science, finding that the source of all of this beauty and function is our sovereign God. And we, these new minds are not trapped in cycles of self-aggrandizement and self-obsession, but they, they look to others. We don't spend time plotting our own game or gain, but we scheme for the good of others, for the flourishing of others, for the love of our neighbor, and we actually might be caught daydreaming and planning about blessing others. What does it mean to be alive to God? It means that we have new eyes. These eyes are nearsighted, seeing that God is always present with us. And they are farsighted, seeing the big picture that God is going to take out of the broken shards of this world and make a beautiful mosaic. These eyes always see the least of these. The poor, the sick, the disabled, the hungry, and the devastated. Seeing them not merely as projects, but people with dignity, wonderfully made in the image of God. These eyes glance away from temptation and gaze at the glory of Jesus. What does it mean to be alive to God? It means that we have new hands. These hands were meant to be lifted high and worshiped to God and extended out as we extend friendship and reconciliation even to enemies. These hands are well-worn from innumerable hours of scrubbing and soothing and strengthening and serving others. These new hands push against the effects of the fall, break the bonds of injustice, and point the world to the one who had his hands pierced on their behalf. What does it mean to be alive to God? It means that we have new hearts. These new hearts are healed of the arrhythmia of sin and are in sync with the heartbeat of God to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who overflow with gladness toward God. Each beat of his heart finds more joy and satisfaction in Christ than can be found in a thousand birthday parties and the roar of celebration of a million Super Bowls, even if it was the Cardinals beating the 49ers. What does it mean to be alive to God? It means that we have new feet. Feet that know whether we stand on the high mountain or the high rise, we are standing on holy ground. Because we stand before a God who declares every inch of the world as his and he's made it good. 
These feet run from sin and sprint towards God and are beautified by the good news to carry us to every corner of the globe to tell the world of the king who washed our feet and washed our hearts. What does it mean to be alive to God? It means that we have a new mouth, a mouth that speaks truth and blessing and thanksgiving instead of gossip and slander. And we honor people with genuine words of appreciation. These mouths become a voice for the voiceless, an instrument announcing the wonderful works of the Lord. The mouth perfectly wielding nouns and verbs and adjectives to perfectly sing the gospel to a world that's weary and needs to hear. And with this mouth, our voices are caught up in the songs of heaven that we read in Revelation 7.12, where it says, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Our union with Christ doesn't just mean that we're sin avoiders, but it means that we are lovers of God with vibrant, new, resurrected lives that live to glorify him and to serve others. Now you may be thinking that you want to be like that, but you don't feel like that. You don't feel like that's you. And in one sense, I think that it's okay, it's okay to think that. It's probably right to think that. Because the, the person that I'm really describing is Jesus. He's the only one who's fully like that. But what this passage is saying is that our lives are connected to the life of Jesus through the resurrection. And that we genuinely do have newness of life through something unique about the resurrection. Now, various commentators, I was reading different commentators throughout the week, and some commentators would say that this passage is actually referring to the future resurrection, the future resurrection of believers when Jesus will return and will be resurrected, we'll have new bodies, we won't sin anymore, we won't struggle anymore, we'll see Jesus perfectly as he is, uh, and things will be made right and be made new. And some commentators say that. Some commentators say, no, the resurrection that it's talking about in this passage is actually Jesus' resurrection and our union with it. Well, I think that both are affirmed in Scripture. Uh, for, For example, the future resurrection. We can find that in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep... But we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. And I think that that passage rightly points to a future day of resurrection where full transformation will come to us, and sin won't even be an issue anymore. But also, Scripture does affirm Scripture affirms uh, the present experience of being really changed and really renewed because of union with Jesus' resurrection. And in a very real sense, we are risen with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
And this is pointing to a, a new reality that is happening within us. A, a real newness, a new creation that happens even here and now as believers on, on, and, and that's connected with the resurrection of Christ. And I think both the past resurrection and our union with it, with Jesus' resurrection, and the future are true. In this passage in particular, I'm, I think he's referring to union with the, the past resurrection of Jesus and that we are risen with him. But I think both are absolutely true. So this passage shows us that there's a real transformation that comes as we are bound to Christ and his resurrection. But we have a problem. And what's our problem? Our problem is that we don't always live into that, into that reality. We, we don't experience that abundant that vibrant life of being alive to God. And that's because so much of our life has been, resh- has been shaped around our old sinful selves. Our minds, our wills, our emotions, our, habitat, our habits have been shaped around our old sinful lives and they need to be reshaped into the image of Christ. And that's why I think Paul in this passage calls us to be spiritual accountants. Let me explain what I mean. When we are united with Christ and his newness of life and we're reborn, we must learn to live out this new life he's given us. But how? Well, here's the thing. Verse 11, Paul begins to tell us. He's going to tell us a lot of things in the book of Romans, but I think we should give special attention to verse 11. Why? Because this is the first command that you find in the entire book of Romans thus far. For five and a half chapters, Paul has not given one command, one imperative. He hasn't been talking about what we need to do. He's just talked about what God has done. And so let's take heed, let's listen to to Romans 6.11. It says, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In Christ Jesus. Now, I think that this word consider is something that we need to to think about for a moment. It's a powerful word. It's sometimes translated as reckon. But no matter how you uh, translate it, whether it be consider or reckon, these aren't words that we, that carry a lot of strength in our common vernacular. Like, for instance, if I asked you if you wanted to go have dinner with me and you told me that you'd consider it, I wouldn't feel very confident about it, right? You know, you, you, you may hear the word reckon here and there. It's not often. Usually it's by someone who's working at like a bait shop, reckoning that there's some, you know, fish in that pond ahead or something like that. But these aren't words that carry a lot of weight. But the word that's being used here is an important word that is filled with meaning. It's the word uh, logizomai. I think that's how you pronounce it, but you don't know Greek and neither do I, so <laughs> not much accountability. Unless Benjamin gets me, but, you know, he's a nice guy. Here's what the word means. It's the word from which we get the English word of logic. Um, this word is often used in the, in the business and commercial world of that day. And it it's, has this connotation of rightly assessing something, rightly accounting for something. It's an accounting term. It's of rightly understanding how much money you have and rightly understanding the cost of something. It was also used in philosophy to refer to objective, non-emotional reasoning. 
So essentially, what we're getting at with this word is the right assessment of things. And what Paul is encouraging us to do here is he's encouraging us to consider. In other words, to get our minds right. If we want to be shaped into the image of Christ and live into this newness of life, we have to be attentive to what goes in our minds and ultimately what shapes our hearts. We're getting messages constantly whether it be uh, watching Hulu or having conversations with friends, you are constantly getting input, and it's shaping what you believe. And what Paul is saying is be attentive to what you do with your mind, what goes in your mind, and that will will, um, shape you. So put in your mind the things that help you consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says this another way in Romans 12 too. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We need to be people who are constantly renewing our mind in the truth. Because there are a lot of things out there that are giving us messages that say that we are actually alive to sin, but dead to God. And we need to be attentive to our minds. How do we do that? Well, in closing, I just want to give you uh, an encouragement of just a couple of ways. There are a number of ways. Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about spiritual disciplines. Well, let me tell you this. We have a lot of spiritual disciplines. Sitting in front of a a TV all day and, 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 and watching football is a spiritual discipline. Or watching 18 episodes in a row of anything on Netflix is a spiritual discipline. Um, what we read is a spiritual discipline. Uh, what we're listening to in others is a spiritual discipline. But the question is, what is it doing to your spirit? How is it shaping your spirit? And I, I'm not encouraging you to run from the world and to uh, never watch Hulu or anything like that. But we must get a constant and steady dose of the truth so our minds can be constantly renewed. So we, when I, this is very simple. You have this book called a Bible. Read it. Read it a lot. Get a reading plan. This, later this week, I'm going to put a blog post up on uh, creating a, um, a reading plan. And it's important. Even if you don't get a new insight or some emotional feeling, what it's doing is it's renewing your mind in the truth. And the second thing is, I think this, is, this gets at the importance of us gathering together. Each week, we have a liturgy, uh, uh, an, or, an order of what we do within the service here that is intended to remind us of the truth and renew us in the truth um, in different ways. See, I had a conversation with someone recently who told me, they said, he said, look, um, I'm a seminary graduate. I know a lot of stuff. I rarely learn anything new when I come to church. And, and I said, well, that's okay. I, I hope that sometimes you learn some stuff new. But you're not coming here to learn new things. You're coming here to get renewed, for your mind to get renewed. And so in the beginning, when we have the call to worship and we affirm our our role as a community, that's renewing our minds that we are a part of a, a community of people who are worshiping. And then as we praise God and adore him, those words shape our mind and renew our mind about the God that we love. 
When we confess our sin, it's a confession that we are in need of God and that we are sinful. And when we go through the assurance of grace, as David leads us, it's the assurance of Christ's work applied to us. Then we hear the sermon and we get our minds and our hearts shaped around the word of God. Then we come forward and take communion and we literally taste the gospel when we taste the bread and the wine and with our taste buds affirm the reality of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for us. And then we sing and celebrate some more and then finally someone like Jason comes up and raises their hand and says a benediction and sends us out and it's a reaffirmation of the truth that as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus sends us out in the world. And it's not fancy, and it's, and it's not all that, that creative, but the constant repetition of being reshaped and renewed has powerful impact over time to shape us more and more into the image of Jesus, to convince our hearts that we are dead to sin, but we are alive to God, Because of a very real Jesus who did some very real things in his death and in his resurrection. Let's pray.